Welcome to the second series of Making the Difference. I'm Kirsty Gilchrist and I'll be talking to leaders and pioneers around the world who have a vision and have a plan as to how to get there. We discuss what drives them and what gets in the way, as well as what they've learned on their journey. So join me as I speak to those who are making the difference. How do you sell a product that you know is vital for the planet, but it will require huge behaviour change to work? Nitrogen accounts for around two-thirds of the carbon footprint of most crops grown, as well as significant source of air and water pollution. But changing the whole of the agricultural system takes time, and time is running out. Before we start, we found some gremlins in our online Zoom recording. The content is golden, however, and I didn't want to re-record, so please just listen, relax and enjoy. So today I'm absolutely delighted to be uh, welcoming Kelly Price, who is co-founder and pioneer of Agreed Earth. We rather took exception to be calling her a leader before, so we, <laughs> we changed it. And, um, and actually, I think pioneer is absolutely right in this context. In the last series, we talked to quite a few um, leaders of established organisations and what pricked my ears up about uh, agreed Earth and Kelly was that this is actually a startup, which is essentially climate tech. And it's looking to solve some rather big problems and it monitors farm nutrients and reduces depletion in our rivers, which I think is something that is dear to everybody's heart. So to put it in simplest terms, we are helping farmers lose and therefore hopefully use less synthetic nitrogen fertilizer to grow our food. And this is a big problem for farmers, and it's a big problem for everybody on the planet, because farmers lose about half of the nitrogen fertilizer that they apply to their fields. And they don't lose it because they don't care. It's not a big deal to them. It's actually one of their biggest costs uh, to produce the food. They lose it because they can't see the loss. And, you know, what doesn't get measured or even noticed, you know, is hard to manage. And that is a major problem for the climate because the fertilizer is very energy intensive to produce. And when you put it on the field, it releases really potent greenhouse gases. It's also a problem for the entire rest of the planet because that nitrogen that leaves the field in runoff that goes into our waterways pollutes the waterways. It um, Nitrate causes cancer. And it also kills the living organisms in the water. So our mission is to help farmers lose and use by shining a light on the loss to help them understand where that loss is coming from and what form. And that can give them insight on decisions that they could take to apply that fertilizer in a different way that would just minimize that loss, staunch the bleed. And if they're keeping more in their system, then they don't need to apply as much in the first place. And so that is our real mission, using satellite data to help illuminate that, because that's really the only thing that can scale for a global problem. So actually, this can have a a global reach or will have a global reach, essentially. Tell me, I mean, how how did you get into this? What, you know, your your journey to here? Because I know that it's it's not been necessarily in, in this field. Yeah, well, I think that. My North Star has always just been following my interests, which have seemed very random. But, you know, as they say, 
life is lived forward but understood backward understood backwards so I was always interested in biology and studied it and that led to a job in the pharmaceutical industry but as concerned and interested as I am and was in human health I increasingly became more concerned in the planetary health because uh, I just saw the way things were going and I thought I have this background and this education and I need to start probably applying it towards some solutions to the problem if I want to feel like I'm making good use of it in my time on the planet. And that's the difference you want to make, essentially, and your North Star. When and how did you know that this had legs? Because it's quite a career move and a career change from being in, in a salaried position to co-founding a startup. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I would say that it wasn't just a smooth transition like most aren't. You spend a lot of time, I think, in the liminal space in between when you're trying to figure things out. You know, if something needs to change, you're not exactly sure how or what. And so leaving pharmaceuticals, I didn't just immediately leave it to found agreed by, by any means. <laughs> it, took, it definitely took a while uh, for a number of reasons. And I think that one of the things is I probably at the back of my mind realized that I'm more of a, a founder of a startup, my own thing. I'm an ideator. I'm a starter. Um, but I'm also not as much of a doer or a finisher. So it's like some really cool perks that come with some drawbacks. And so the point is, is that it was probably very unlikely that I would found a successful startup on my own. I definitely needed partners who kind of shored up my weaknesses, but also utilize my strengths. So that was a part of it. So it took a while to find founders, co-founders, but the, it's also because the program that I found didn't exist until, until it did. So I found the program Carbon 13, a venture builder for climate startups uh, during the pandemic. And so when, when I came across it, I was like, where have you been all my life? This is what I needed. This is what I want to do. And luckily, I was in a place at that point where I had the freedom to join the program because I didn't need to quit a job because I'd already left that behind. So that that was actually helpful. Um, and the other was just kind of this journey of figuring out, okay, here, what is the real problem? What is the root cause of this? And where can my skill sets and knowledge kind of plug in to provide a solution to part of it? Because, I mean, it's, a, it's one of those uh, wicked problems. There's It's not just one little source, you know, unfortunately. And so all of that took some time to, to gain that understanding and just to, to find that way forward. So, yeah. It, and, then, and then to add to that, when I did join this program and meet my co-founders and we came up with the idea of Agreed, this is very important, I think. We founded the company on a mission which is to accelerate the adoption of sustainable farming practice because the way we produce our food is the source of um, one, one fourth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So a huge portion of it, but also very importantly, a huge part of the ecosystem and habitat loss that's driving the bioecological crisis. So it's like the source of two major things that are colliding right now to increasingly make it, difficult for us to survive as we have been. And so 
we focused on this mission. I was like, all right, well, we need to grow our food differently if we want to keep eating, and I for one do. So what can we do to do that? And and this is important because if you ha- are focused on the mission, then you'll keep trying to find ways to achieve it. And if you're only focused on a solution, you think, I've got the solution. I know exactly what we need to do. And you keep pushing that one solution. If you run up against a wall, it's hard to to pivot or or to adapt. So that's why I think North Stars are really important um, yeah. and, and missions and staying focused on being in love with the problem, not the solution. And so, yeah, back to your original question, we we didn't know agreed had legs at all. What we knew is we had a mission that we wanted to achieve and a problem that we wanted to solve. And so it was about, yeah, figuring out what we get at that. So it feels like it's a, it's a very pragmatic approach and and being able to look at okay what well, well this, this is the problem let let's focus on that at which point did you go this is it this is actually this is the bit of the problem that we'd like to focus on and how did you know that that had like was that collective Ta-da! or with that did you just get a feeling or or how absolutely did that so again work? it goes back to understanding the root cause of the problem right uh farms at the end of the day are businesses right they're they're small businesses you could you could kind of call them smes but they have such peculiar properties that they're really their own entities and you know a business is going to do what it needs to do to make enough profit to stay alive and so when you realize that then you can ask yourself well why are these businesses not adopting these more sustainable practices that you know we know are better for their land, better for the surrounding environment, the planet as a whole. If they're so great and in the long run they can save money, why don't they do these things? And you know we talked to a lot of farmers and visited farms and walked in very muddy fields and really tried to get a you know a, a, a ground truth level understanding of the issue. And, you know, farms at the end of the day are going to do what they believe is in that farm's business best interests. So when you you understand that, then you understand it's not really so much an issue of education. I mean, that's a part of it for sure. It's not so much an issue of even kind of like hearts and minds in a sense. You know, it's not like these guys are like, oh, I just don't care about the land. I don't care about the planet. It's that like, well, I care about the planet. But I still need to grow my crop. And if it fails, then I don't make money that year and I could go under, right? And that's a that's a reasonable you know thing to worry about. In the same sense, it's like, well, you yeah, could yeah, say yeah. to Absolutely. somebody who's working in an office, well, why don't you just give up your car and you know ride your bike? And they're like, well, if I were going to do that, then I'd have to probably move closer because that's a really long bike ride. And I can't afford to move right now. My kids are in school locally. So... I'm going to keep on driving my car, even though I wish I didn't have to. It, it's a, not exactly the same, but, you know, it's a similar principle of people that are part of a system and they, they see the way forward through that system. And so we said to ourselves, all right, understood. So whatever this is, the solution, it needs to be in the business economic interests of that farmer or else it's going to be very difficult to, it'll be pushing the solution uphill. And so we, we looked at their business and realized a number of truths. 
So it's a huge pain point for farmers in lots of different ways. But what's interesting is it sounds like you're using tech for behavior change. What we're doing is, you know, there's a, a part of kind of behavior change theory that talks about just making something visible can have a behavior change effect because out of sight, out of mind. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of strategy then, um, would you say that your, I mean, your your strategy must be fairly early on as a startup. How much would you say is operational versus influencing at the moment? I think that our, that's a great question because our strategy informs our business model and our mission informs our strategy. So to take that back again to first principles, mission, accelerate adoption of sustainable practices that would help farmers. And, and, and the reason that we chose nitrogen is there are ways that you can stack a number of different sustainable practices to get a similar yield to what you're getting now by rehabilitating the soil biology so that you don't need so much synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So that was why nitrogen was kind of this hook that we could use that was in the economic interests we need, knew we needed to play to, but also in our mission's interests. So it aligns those interests. And um, we then were like, okay, well, we need, we want to accelerate these practices and we know that finance is a big key to that. And we know that farmers are afraid to do things differently because they worry that anything different might drop their yields. And so they're, they're very likely to keep doing what they've been doing. Yeah. Even if they kind of get varying results, just because it seems to be the safest thing to do in an already risky system. I mean, think about being a farmer. You don't have control over very much. You don't have control over prices of inputs. You don't have control over prices of what you sell things for. You know, you're in the middle of both of those things squeezed and you certainly don't have control over the weather. In fact, increasingly you have no idea what the weather is even going to do because the one thing you almost certainly know is it's not going to do what it used to do and you count on yeah absolutely you're and that's such a valid point because it's almost best the devil you know in a circumstance where you are out of control the one thing you can control is what you know yes what you know and 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 working within the confines of what you know, and which is probably what you usually do and have almost always done, exactly. Yeah. So in in this you know brave new world to go to a farm and say, hey, I want you to start farming differently. In fact, I want you to use less nitrogen. And they're going to be like, are you freaking kidding me? Like I already struggled to get the yield I need for the contracts that I've said I'd supply, and now you want me to limit the one thing I kind of have control over that that actually yeah. produces results. Like, take a hike. So going back to the, and I I sort of bring in influencing into it, because there's the behaviour change that you want with the farmers. That behavioural change will come with incentives, won't it? So I know that in our our last conversation, in a first concept, I'd have gone, well, you just spend loads of time marketing to farmers and, and hitting your head against the brick wall. But actually, I thought you've got a really neat business model in terms of actually the, the others that are now in there. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So sorry, I derailed myself a better. It's a, it's all, all answers are a bit complex, but you know, going back to the business model, if the mission is to accelerate the adoption of these practices and the, the hook or the leverage point is nitrogen fertilizer, 
Um, and the goal is to put, you know, make sustainability affordable, in fact, economically attractive, then we knew if we were selling something to farmers, two things. One, that takes away from the value that we're trying to give to them, which is making this journey, the sustainable journey, pay better, be more economically attractive. And the second thing is, going back to what I was saying about farms being quite unique, we also realized that the B to F model, business to farmer, is very difficult to scale because you're basically selling, it, it combines the worst of B to B and B to C because these guys are all independent, like, you know, your consumers, like trying, you have to reach each individual. Yeah. But at the same time, they're taking decisions like a business would. And um, I heard it recently. Somebody said that, you know, consumer selling to consumers is getting people to um, want to buy things they don't need. And then B2B, it's getting businesses to buy things they need but don't want. And so <laughs> oh, I was like, that is it. And that is basically the B2F model. Um, you know, they need it, but they don't want it. Yeah. And it's really hard to get them to, to buy. And um, and there's no easy kind of route to market because it's individual business to business, right? So um, we decided, or actually we recognized that there were other entities that were affected by the farmer's loss of nitrogen. And that may sound interesting. Like, why, why would anybody else care about what's going on on that farm? Well, the first entity is the water company that that farm is in. Because if a lot of that nitrogen is running off the farm in the form of nitrate, which, as we talked about, is cancerous, the water companies have a legal requirement to keep the nitrate in drinking water below a certain level. Yeah. And in order to do that, if there's a lot of this nitrate running off the farms, they have to treat that water in some way. And that requires energy and therefore is costly. And so if it it is probably an order of about a thousand times cheaper for a water company to work with a farmer and help them keep that nitrate out of the water system in the first place, either by cropping in a way that it doesn't get into the water system and or, you know, paying them to use less, which can offset any risk that they worry about of, you know, their yield going down. And so that is actually our first port of call is to work with water companies who tend to have relationships with a number of farms in their area. They have a catchment area managers, they call them who go there and talk to the farmers and see how things are going and try to, you know, find ways that they might be able to work with them. And so what we're able to do with the tech is provide the water companies with an overview of their catchment areas and the nitrate hotspot, loss hotspots. And that can help them understand which farms and farmers to try to target to have the biggest impact to keep that nitrate out of the water in the first place. And as I was saying, having this ability to, you know, target the mitigation efforts and also then monitor it over time is so much more, uh, you know, economically attractive than the idea of building a brand new nitrate uh, removal plant, which is carbon and capital intensive to build and run. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's the first. But there's two others that, you know, I'm, there's multitudes, but two major ones are banks and food companies or, you know, the companies that these farmers supply because the banks are 
helping finance that farm. And therefore, from the nitrogen especially, they're financing the emissions from that nitrogen. And banks are required to reduce their financed emissions to be reporting on this. And it's tricky because farms are very complex. And people talk a lot about carbon as that finance or that emission, but carbon fluctuates because it's part of the living cycle. And this nitrogen, as we talked about, is being artificially pulled out of the air and then put on the ground. And so that's very quantifiable. And also because of the impacts to water and air, in addition to the climate, I didn't even mention it releases ammonia, which is an air pollutant. So it's not good for local air quality on top of all of this. It is a leverage point you can push on in the system to have outsized positive impact. And so it's quantifiable and, you know, hugely impactful. And so it's a great area. And again, it's something that farmers would love to need less of. So if banks can work with the farms that they help finance to reduce those farmers' need for this one input, it can have outsized positive impact. And so that's the reason for banks. And then in terms of the food companies that the farms supply, they are increasingly looking at their scope three emissions. And that's like the the emissions coming from their own supply chain, which these farmers are an integral, essential part of, you know, no, no, no farms, no food. So they also need to be looking at the, the carbon footprint of what they're sourcing. And as we said, nitrogen is used through pretty much every farming system. And you could kind of be like livestock. I mean, cows eat grass. So if, how in the world are, you know, livestock farmers, you know, working with nitrogen? Well, actually, I, I learned this, but the grass that they tend to use to grow their cattle, they use tons of nitrogen fertilizer to grow the grass, which is, I know, you would really, but grass just grows that. Like, well, this rye grass actually is very nitrogen intensive. It needs nitrogen to grow, and then it does, and then the cows eat it, and they get big, and Bob's your uncle. But, yeah, right at the beginning, it goes back to nitrogen to grow the grass to grow the cows. So it, it's it's two-thirds of the carbon footprint of a good chunk of the food that we eat, this nitrogen fertilizer. That, that's amazing. So, I had no idea <laughs> about that. So, so if food companies really want to kind of reduce their scope three and the footprint of what they're sourcing, one of the best places to start is help their farmers learn how to get by with less nitrogen fertilizer. So, so out, out of those three... Um, I'm going back to the strategy again. Who do you think are the will be the longest journey to influence, or the maybe the, the hardest to bring around? Well, again, we started with water because we had already seen water companies. They have they have an immediate cost of yeah. getting this nitrate out of the water, and they have no control over what a farmer does on his or her land, and also not much line of sight of kind of what's coming at them through the system based on what's happening that year on the farm. So that is one of the reasons that we started with water first. I think banks have the next probably, um, oh, this is funny because genuinely I think that the food companies would be very wise to be acting on this right now. Um, I'll get to that. But that's different to actually respond. Yes, it is. It is. Um, just based on the conversations we've ha- heard, I'll give you an anecdote, okay? I was speaking at a farming conference this summer, and I, I was talking about this problem and what we're doing. 
And a woman from one of the food companies, which I won't name, stood up and asked a question. And, you know, I appreciated that. And it was, how do we get more farmers on this journey? You know, like we, we just want to educate them. And what do we need to do to educate them, to get them on this journey so that they're using less nitrogen? And I kind of looked at her and I was like, pay them, pay them to use less, like support them and, and, and put some money into this. And, and that's the best way. And I could see the look on her face. She did not want to hear that. The reason is because, well, I mean, it's, it's just yeah. economics. If you can get somebody to do it for free, you'd rather do that. Right. And if you can convince yourself that it's just an educational issue and, and doesn't need any financial support, then, you know, education is an easy one to you know, focus on. Um, if you think I've got to pay every single farmer in my supply chain a little bit more now, that adds up very quickly. Um, so I think that that is one of the reasons, but the reason I said that I would love to see them acting on this very simple way to get their farmers, uh, much less reliant on synthetic nitrogen ASAP is because of resilience. Because as I was mentioning, if they want to have supply, reliable supply in an increasingly changing and crazy climate yeah then helping their farmers not need all the synthetics that kill the soil acidify it mean that it can't hold water that's going to be the best way to shore up their supply chain going forward than anything else that they could do well, it's really fascinating and i'm very grateful to you that you're putting this all in layman terms because I can I can visualize everything that you're saying and it, it all completely makes sense. And that's a huge skill to have because that's going to really help. Again, I'm I'm just thinking of that kind of influencing piece that you need to do to all those different audiences. I love the fact that there are, you've got one <laughs> simple solution. I mean, it might not be simple when it comes to actually <laughs> making it all work, but the idea which has got so many different runoffs in terms of positive, you know, it's it can actually increase income for mm-hmm. farmers, um, both in in the sense that they're going to be spending less, but also they could actually earn something from all three potentially the the water companies, the banks, and the food companies. So that's got that's amazing, and then it, then it hits all those other you know presses all those other green buttons for everybody else. It just it's it's seems really neat it's brilliant like i say i'm sure behind the scenes <laughs> it might not quite feel like that well there's there's tons of great ideas out there that kind of never get implemented so i you know like it, it it definitely makes all kinds of sense and you know we've got some early signals that there are people interested in this direction of travel for sure so that's that's really great you know paying customers and and that sort of thing um i just i like we need to do this at pace is is the real challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's not just for our business. I mean, for the planet, because like what I was saying about the soil holding water, um, you know, we're increasingly, as you know, even in the global north, having crazy floods, crazy droughts, crazy heat waves. And so and, you know, uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer is increasingly expensive or increasingly uh, hard to come by. Due to shortages, yeah. the war in Ukraine won't even go into that. But you know what that's done to the global natural gas supplies um, that this stuff's made out of. So the best way that we can shore up our food system and make sure that 
you know, the farmers are mitigating as much risk as they really can in the crazy risky system is to make sure that their soil is as healthy as possible so that it can hold that water that it gets and and survive kind of whatever comes at it and that they're not yeah. completely reliant on this increasingly expensive, increasingly, well, it may become, I, I would expect it will become increasingly scarce resource i mean yeah. natural gas all, all fossil fuels are finite so what would you say because i know at a startup I and mean, you're going to be going through investment rounds and you're developing this at the moment but what are your biggest barriers at the moment in terms of achieving your mission uh time <laughs> hours yeah. in a day um and i think that well you know an interesting one working with agriculture and working with biology is you can't speed up the agricultural cycle. Like everything happens in seasons, right? You can't just press fast forward yeah. and have two seasons in one. You have to wait months to see what results you're going to well, get. Maybe in about another 10 years, we might just have one season. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on the one hand, the crazy thing about agriculture is it's the world's largest continuous 24-7, 365 outdoor experiment going on everywhere and at the same time nobody's really collecting the data on this to crunch it and even even then let's say we have pretty good ideas of what what works in what context when and where uh the game the rules of the game are changing with the weather getting increasingly unpredictable and increasingly extreme so what did work even if we had crunched all those numbers we can't even rely on necessarily going forward and I'm assuming as well, I mean, particularly, um, I know that in, in parts of Africa, they're now changing their crops. Yeah. So so therefore, they, they then don't know how much is needed for a new crop that might be mm -hmm. coming in. So there's also playing with, I'm, I'm assuming we're, we're probably starting to do that ourselves and in the States too. So yeah, there's, there's so many different things at play here. Isn't there? I mean, like, let's, let's put this in um, a very relevant close to home context. This summer, the olive crop failed in the Mediterranean, the home yeah. of olives. Yeah. If, if the Mediterranean can't grow olives, you know, Houston, we've got a problem, right? Absolutely. And I think stories like that are, are, are possibly the red flags that hopefully are going to make a difference to those that you're trying to influence. Just this year, um, there came out a report, and forgive me for not having the source on the top of my head. It basically said that multiple breadbasket failure, and what that means is the places that grow our grains, so quote-unquote breadbasket like wheat and rye and barley and, and the things that we rice, basically rely on for most of our calories, multiple so yeah. simultaneous in the same year breadbasket failure isn't just likely, isn't just even inevitable. It's inevitable in, I believe, the next 10 years. Like, they are absolutely expecting it to happen in the next 10 years. Like, the odds of it not happening yeah. are low. It's, it is, it's quite terrifying. And, and again, I suppose, in terms of your strategic communication, it, it's, it's quite difficult to not sound like a doom monger, <laughs> but at the same time, accelerate progress by, because it, it is quite difficult, isn't it? When, if, if it's always like, mm -hmm. if you don't do this now, we're all, Mm. gonna die um, and so being able to think about it that again that positive incentivizing um is really quite terrifying in the last series i interviewed ben Foltz of the black jaguar foundation and he's he's mm -hmm. reforesting the amazon 
And I came out at the end of that going, oh, my God, that's amazing. I'm just so optimistic now because he's so optimistic. <laughs> having this conversation going, oh, right, yeah, yeah, there's the other bit. <laughs> I mean, it, it flips sides of the same coin, isn't it? If you, it, it, optimism is absolutely needed. And I heard a phrase recently that I loved and, I'm gonna, again, I'm so bad with sources. I'm going to forget who said it, but uh, they call it dark optimism. And I like that because you have to be realistic. Optimism yeah. in absence of, you know, just accepting reality, I would argue, isn't very probably helpful because if you don't accept reality. But may, maybe dark optimism is hope. Dark optimism is optimism in the face of a very challenging or even scary yeah. reality. And, you know, Greta said it, and I can't disagree with her, you know, I want you to be terrified. You should be terrified. You should be terrified if we yeah, don't I mean, start doing things differently. Yeah. But let's harness that because the the optimism comes from the fact that there actually is, as you were saying, a quite a simple solution. Like if we focus on this one leverage point in the system, we can have a huge positive impact. Yeah. And it's a, a way to focus on it. In, in a win-win scenario where the, the food companies, you know, make sure that they're shoring up their supply and reducing their carbon footprint. And the banks are reducing the emissions that they're financing, you know, in a way that helps their customers. That's the other part of that. And the water companies are saving a ton by making sure that nitrate never gets in the water in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, and all of that goes to helping support the farmer in this, you know, what could be a scary behavior change for them yeah but if they know that they have that support then they're not worrying that they're literally betting the farm on doing something different absolutely no and it it sounds like the way that you put this across that that's that just makes complete sense and and therefore hopefully we'll um you'll get all of your investment (laughs) and be able to do everything now (laughs) yes well well, from the from an investor's standpoint the best thing is one farm you know could provide three different revenue streams for not just for the farmer, but for our business, because we're a SaaS model selling to those entities to support the farms that are in their supply chain or they're affected by. And it's a global problem. We grow food everywhere. So we're, you know, a a, a nature based global um, solution to a global problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, I think I'm sort of going back and and thinking about you, um, Kelly, and you have sort of moved into this new role and you know as a co-founder and pioneer um, <laughs> can i put that on my business card now pioneer i think I like you should that. i think you should i love it climate tech pioneer what have you had to overcome personally because that it must require different skills it must be things that you're pushing the boundaries of yourself in order to do this as a person um you know it's it's funny because in many ways, what I'm doing now plays more to my strengths and my skill set than anything I've done in the past. Wow. So, in, in some ways, it's like, oh, finally, I found my sweet spot. All this crazy random stuff that I thought was pretty useless, but I, I seem to be good at, finally, is coming into play. This is fantastic. Um, and at the same time, there are other challenges uh you know, for example, being an early stage company, everything that everybody in our company is doing, okay, with the exception of our senior geospatial data scientists, but everybody else, we're doing this for the first time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so we're 
kind of, you know, figuring things out as we go along. That was that, I think, where you got the word pioneer. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, like, it's like whacking the bush and kind of, go, you know, what, what's up ahead? Ooh, yeah. ooh. <laughs> oh, that's <something> wrong, wrong <laughs> way. <laughs> exactly. Retreat. Um, so, so there's that element. There's, I think I might have also talked about the hat. It's like all of us have to wear multiple hats and some of them we don't look so good in. So it doesn't matter if you're good at something or not there's a job that needs to be done. Somebody has yeah. got to do it. And so let's figure out who can do it at least right now, you know? Um, so there's that element of it. And then there's, as I was mentioning time, there's, you know, the, the planetary issues and there that's completely on their own time scale. And again, with a bit more dark optimism, like that, that time scale, that the clock is speeding up. Yeah. And We've seen that the last three years, every single year has been hotter than the one before, and that every single of those years was the hottest ever. So we can only guess what next year is going to be like, right? Yeah. And we're still trying to grow food in these situations where there's fires everywhere and droughts and heat waves killing the crops. So just just be keeping it real for a minute there, right? Like <laughs> we need solutions at scale at pace. Yeah. Um, and early stage companies, one of our challenges is we need the time to build everything out like climate tech companies startups are really being given quite a challenge we're being asked to innovate solutions to a wicked problem that is accelerating at pace um and so innovation takes time but we're also told we need to you know do it you know in you know like in the next three years and we need to also make a big profit like a 10x scalable 10x profit while we while we do all that and and also work out what you're doing and how you're doing it because you're all new to this absolutely so we want innovation yeah. we want profit and we want speed and we want it yesterday and honestly the planet demands it yesterday so i'm i'm, I'm down with that i'm happy to rise to that challenge right um it's just that if we could take away some of the concern of the financial support for these innovative solutions that are desperately needed for the planet. Right. Yeah. Because that is the hard part. Like, you know, we're looking at our next raise and it's like, okay, well now I have to think about how much time do I spend on speaking to investors and focusing on you know, getting the next round in the door versus actually working on building the solutions and the commercial traction that all those yeah. investors want to see in order to want to invest. And so it's I, it's I really tricky. It, yeah, that's always been a tenuous link, hasn't it, between spending time trying to bring investment in rather than actually doing the job, and that's it's it's so difficult. And that time, you, I'm assuming you must feel that you, to a certain extent you've got a bit of the weight of the world on your shoulders. <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of literally. <laughs> but I think again that offers an opportunity. Uh, I was talking to our MP out of Cambridge about this, and. For example, we get asked a lot, well, what can we do to get more investment to early stage climate startups? What, 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 what do they need? And I'm like, well, we need two things. We need investment and we need customers. And there's a great way that policy could help with both. Uh, one, with investment, there are here in the UK tax breaks for investors who invest in early stage startups because it's risky. And, and that's totally understood. And so that's a way to help you know, de-risk that investment for those investors in a way that then makes it easier for those companies to raise. And that's very needed in the early stage. And I feel like if we, you know, what gets measured gets managed or, or produces the outcome, 
And so if we measured the impact that that whatever that startup solution is likely to bring, if it were to come to market and scale, and then we could feed that that measurement of the impact back into some kind of similar de-risking tax break. Wouldn't that be yeah. an, a, an incredible way to funnel a lot of this private investment that's looking that's, for? That's a whole other business. <laughs> In my free time. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it's a really um, tricky, tricky thing because you can clearly visualize how it's going to work. But there's that time, and it is risky. But the customers, the more customers there are, then you're de-risking, and it makes so much sense. Yeah. And that's, and that's the second thing, because early stage startups need customers, and those customers tend to be, if they're especially in climate tech, B2B, so corporations. Yeah. And corporations tend to not have a lot of um, apparatus, like ways to plug in with startups, ways to work with them, um, kind of a, a dedicated department to piloting with innovative, you know, impactful solutions. Uh, and so that's another challenge because if we need to show commercial progress at pace as well and find just finding the right person to speak to in every organization takes quite a lot of research and legwork and everything and time, then that's added barrier and challenge. And so I, I can only imagine there are tons of amazing solutions that somebody thought up and founded a business to provide and even maybe got some initial funding to do and then before they could prove it all out and build it all out, they ran out of time and money. And so it just never saw the yeah. light of day. Think about that. So listeners, if you work for a corporate and you would like to invest <laughs> in a solution that needs to happen now, <laughs> or customers, should I say, become customers? Yeah, yeah, become customers. Like, you know, because yeah. um, it, it's a pretty, because these companies wouldn't charge much money, right? For Because they're, they're just getting started themselves. It's a way to co-create a solution or yourself in a, a fairly de-risky because you're not, you know, betting your company on the solution, but it could result in something that's very helpful to you and the planet. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll rephrase that then. Listeners, <laughs> if you're from a corporate and you're really interested in this, you could potentially be a customer. And a part, of, and that would be really exciting. Really exciting and a part of the solution, a part of creating the solution. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I think that sounds fantastic. So I have a little question for you here. What are the top three things that you would advise any <laughs> co-founder stroke pioneer? Yeah, I think that being in love the with the problem, <laughs> not any one solution as your North Star, like you were saying, the mission, that's hugely important. I would say the second thing, and this was told to us in that program, Carbon 13, and I didn't really believe it in the at the time, but it turned out to be so true, is that team is everything. You can have a, a, a B team with an A idea, and they may not that idea may be great, but it may never see the light of day because they can't execute. But you can have an A team that starts out with a B idea, but because they work well and they trust each other and the communication is open and honest, even when it's difficult, means that they can work through the roller coaster ahead because let's face it, early stage is a roller coaster and you you will go through if, if it were easy, everybody would do it. So it's it's about those relationships that will enable you to execute and keep working until you find the A idea that is so important. And and then 
the third thing that I would say, and this will sound almost spiritual, but um, it, it's not really, but it's just that trust that you are enough and you are what you need. Because I think that's one of the things a lot of people struggle with is that imposter syndrome. And, you know, like I even said, you know, I'm not a leader. I'm not a CEO, really. You know, I'm, I'm just a girl with an idea. Um, but really, somebody said it to me and it's it's I, I really came to to trust in it is that you are the CEO. You are the leader that you need to be. And I think that can be hard to trust in. But at the same time, you know, there's only one you and the best thing that you can do is be as much you as you can possibly be, because that's the best way to add value to the planet. <laughs> I love that. I, I do work with with several startups. And that is one of the things, uh, particularly female, perhaps say, who, who will think, assume that everybody knows more than them, even though they are the expert in what they're doing and mm-hmm. being themselves, which is always brilliant. So I, I think that's a brilliant piece of advice. I, I, maybe if I could distill that, it, it all boils down to authenticity. I completely you know, agree. The more you, you can genuinely be, then th- that's what probably will best serve your, your company and your yeah. mission. As crazy as that may sound. No, that does not sound crazy at all. And if, if there were more people saying that and being <laughs> it, I think we would be in a better place right now. Lastly, mm-hmm. lastly is... How do you think listeners can make a difference or help you to make a difference? I think those are two very different things, actually. I think listeners can make a difference by finding the one thing that they really care about and are willing to act on. Because, my God, there's so many so many problems in the world, so many things that one could or should care about, and all are worthy, you know, of our attention and our, our hearts. And... At the same time, our time is limited and our hearts probably can only hold so much pain at one time, I think, and so much caring um, in a way that it actually can hurt. And so, you know, you can't do everything. Um, I think, was it Mother Teresa? We can only do small things with great love. And so pick the one thing that you really can't help but care about. You can't shut out and act on it and then... I think that that can help you feel better about all the things that you can't act on. And you know that you are truly making a difference to that one thing that you, you can't help That's but really care about. Love that. So, and I think if people did that, That's that would wonderful. help me. Okay. This has been a fan- fantastic conversation. I've learned huge amounts that I would never have, if I'd just been trying to <laughs> I know, troll the internet, I don't think I would have anything uh, quite as much. And, actually how important what you're doing is so thank you for that and thank you for and to your co-founders and to your future investors and customers and and thank you for this conversation it's been absolutely wonderful and good luck and it would be wonderful if in a year's time we could maybe catch up and see where you are that would be amazing i'd love that let's do it thank you for listening to making the difference Please like and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next week for another episode of Making the Difference. If you have any thoughts, comments or questions, please find me on Instagram, links in the show notes, and please also subscribe and review. Thank you for listening to Making the Difference.